Welcome to the Lex City Church Podcast. To learn more about the ministries of Lex City, please visit LexCity.Church. Good morning to you, Lex City Church. It's an honor to be with you. It's uh, and blessings and good morning to those of you that are watching us remotely as well. We're glad to have you do journey with us also. It is a real privilege for my wife and I to be here and to be a part with you. Uh, as Pastor Brian mentioned, I have the privilege of giving service and oversight to about 70 churches around parts of Ohio, Kentucky, and Tennessee in 13 different languages. So we're often in all different kinds of settings, get to see church in many different forms and shapes, but we always love coming to Lex City. It's nice to be home, and it's a nice to be at a place where we feel like we can have our own batteries recharged for the work that we do. So we're grateful for this church and the ministry that it has even directly to us. I have real privilege as well to build a second step under the foundation. Pastor Brian started us last week with a look at the book of Acts, gave a great foundation piece that I'd love to springboard off of some today. And before we look a little bit at the word directly from the book of Acts, I want to just set the scene a little bit with a story that took place in my own journey some years ago. There was a time a poor, starving minister didn't have a whole lot of extra stuff, God had gifted my wife and I and our two little kids a car. It was a Honda Civic. It was a faithful car, never had to repair the thing. It just ran and ran and ran. But there's two things that I would view as being somewhat negative about this car. First, it was essentially purple. I think they called it eggplant or something like that to make it sound palatable, but I knew better. It was purple, and it didn't feel very manly to me. Secondly, I will say this. The engineers who designed the Honda Civic, not a one of them stood over five foot seven. All right? And I'm just slightly higher than that. So I folded myself into this vehicle, and, and praise God for it. It served so well. But there came a point when it came to the end of its useful life. And I don't know whether it's midlife crisis or what, but it seemed like an opportunity for me to man up. And manning up meant that I felt like I needed a vehicle that on the dashboard, it had a button that said 4WD, or four-wheel drive. Now, at the time, I lived in Northeast Ohio in suburbia, and the truth is, I probably needed four-wheel drive maybe two or three times a year, maybe. I'd lived my whole life without it and somehow had survived. But it felt important to me. So I looked around, I bought what was new for me, but a used fire engine red Chevy Blazer. And, and it had the appropriate button on the dash. And so I had just bought this vehicle and was meeting my brother. My brother's three years younger than me. Dave lives in Columbia, South Carolina. At the time, I was in Northeast Ohio. We connect every year for several days. We'll go hiking, exploring. We go driving down roads that probably you shouldn't go. You hear banjos and things like that. And and we just talk about Jesus and our jobs and our families and all these things together. So this year, just after I bought that vehicle, we're meeting in West Virginia, almost heaven. We had borrowed a cabin from somebody that was gracious to let us put it to use. And so we sat along the stream. We got there one evening. We're down by the stream behind the house, little campfire, talking. And I'm like, Dave. We're in West Virginia, almost heaven. I have this vehicle. It's got a button on the dashboard. 
we're two men. No women around. It's our weekend. We're going to be men. We're going four-wheel driving. So tomorrow morning, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get up. We're going to drive down this little road that we're on. We're going to take the first dirt road to the right. We're going to push that button, and we're just going to go. I had looked at a map, and there was like this large rectangle that where uh, at the edges of this rectangle were roads that were big enough to actual, actually have a number. So I figured that it might take months, but eventually we would come to one of those roads, and we would kind of know where we were. And so I don't know if you've been to West Virginia very much, but I'm, I don't think I'm exaggerating to say that in the entirety of the state, there is not a single straight road or flat road anywhere. But this is paradise for two guys with a four-wheel drive vehicle. So during the night, as we had dreams of all this, it rained during the night, but the sun came out in the morning. We had breakfast down by the stream, and we said, let's go. It's our moment. Away we go. So we get into the vehicle, drive down. I let my brother drive at first because I'm this nice guy. So we, we came down first road to the right, turned up this road. We went maybe a quarter mile up this road, and, and my brother stops. And I said, what are you stopping for? He says, well, I was just thinking a little bit, like, if we're going to die today, probably you should be the driver. <laughs> and so we switched, and I drove. And did I mention that it had rained during the night? So I learned something new that I did not know, that you take rain and put it on dusty, dirty roads, and it's about the same as driving on ice on asphalt. It's just not much different. It's just slick as anything. And so we're, we're trying to drive, and pretty soon my fire engine red vehicle is just completely brown, covered with mud. And I learned something else. You take a dirt road, and you drive on it repeatedly, and it starts to form what we would call ruts, right? Ruts. These are not minor ruts. I'm like afraid of bottoming out my four-wheel drive vehicle. So these ruts, there's whole towns down in there, right? There's people calling for help. So we're trying to avoid the ruts because I want to stay up on the edge. And, and did I mention that it had rained? So you take gravity and mud, and there's just not a chance we're avoiding the ruts. And while we're doing that, a question is going through my mind. It's, it's part of a disease that we pastors have. Pastor Brian has it too. Tammy will surely confirm this. It doesn't matter what we in ministry are doing. It doesn't matter what we're experiencing. We can be at the smash-up derby at the county fair. We can be hiking with our family near the waterfall. We could be having a colonoscopy. And we're thinking this question. I wonder if this will preach. I wonder if there's a good sermon illustration in this. This is just how we live life, okay? So I'm trying to stay out of these ruts. I'm like, I wonder if this will preach. And actually, it, it would. There's like this book, the Bible, is just filled with guidance and warnings for us about some of the ruts, the bad habits, the patterns of life that we ought to avoid, right? That's not the point of the message today, but you can go home at lunch. You can try to compare with whoever's with you and see who can come up with the most biblical ruts that we're supposed to avoid. So we're driving, and I'm thinking through these kind of questions, and I'm also discovering one other thing. Every time we went down into some valley, we had to do what? We had to go back up, right? So it's slick, it's muddy. 
I need to make sure that I have enough speed, enough pace on the downside. Because otherwise, we get stuck out there. And at first, I thought, well, we get stuck out here. We can find our way out. I got GPS. Well, not if you're in the middle of the forest and mountains of West Virginia, you don't. I thought, well, we have AAA. Well, that'd be good. About five months later, they'd pull up, right? There's just no way. We had cell phones with no service. We had nothing. So I need to make sure we have enough speed on the downslope to get back up and crest whatever it is on the other side. So at one point, I remember it came down. I was, I, I didn't know. How do you judge? But I came down much too fast, had a lot of speed, crested the next day. You don't know what's on the other side. I crested that point, and away we go, immediately back down. And we already had a lot of speed. And we're going down this mountainside. I'm looking at the tree roots beside me, and there's trees on the side of the mountain, and the tree roots right there. I'm looking at the tops of trees on this side. I'm looking down this valley. We're going down this road on the side of the mountain. And I see that about two-thirds of the way down this mountain, the road is going to bend to the left. This seemed problematic to me. I tried to test my brakes, but on the mud and the downslope, that was worthless. I just thought, there's no way we're making this bend. I started to wonder, will very many people come to the service? <laughs> will they say nice things? Will my wife and children be well cared for? Th these are things that go through your mind at this point. Now, I stand before you today because I made the bend. I got around the corner probably for only two reasons. The first is that there is a God and he's ever so gracious. Secondly, a very practical reason, it was the ruts. I actually probably couldn't have driven off the side of the mountain if I wanted to. I was locked in like on tracks on these ruts and it just took me right around the bend. My wheels were locked into those ruts. And immediately a question goes through my mind. I wonder if this will preach. Because that's what we do, right? And, and I started to go, I wonder, not all ruts are bad. The ruts actually just saved me. There probably are ruts in life that are good. And actually, that would be true. That at the end of my life, there would be some habits, some patterns of life that I hope would have walked with me the entirety of my journey. And as I travel around to these 70-some churches that I have the privilege to serve, I would love to see them stuck in certain ruts. I'm going to give you five of them today. They're not exhaustive. You could probably come up with others, but I think they're valuable. You don't have to use my words. Different churches will use their own words. As a matter of fact, I'm not going to tell you some things that are probably disturbingly new. Lex City Church already, in their own words, embraces these values. But I actually think that the world could not contain what would happen if churches across the board would get stuck in some of these wonderful ruts. To do so, I want to not just make them up. I actually would like to think that they're biblical. So we're going to look at the Bible. Now, the Bible tells us a little bit about the start of the church. The book that it tells us about the beginning of church is the book of, we call it the book of Acts. It's actually the Acts of the Apostles. And we find the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2, which makes me think that there could be some foundational pieces preliminary to that in Acts chapter 1. And that's where we're going to find these five things. So I'm going to take you through just the first 14 verses, not the entirety of Acts 1, but follow with me as I read. I will 
take pastoral privilege to editorialize a few way, points along the way. Verse 1 of Acts chapter 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Well, what's the former book? Anybody know? It's the book of Luke. That's the author here is Luke. He's written two books in the Bible. The first one is just called Luke. It's one of the stories of the life of Jesus, the Gospels. And then this one, the story of the beginning and the first days of the church. So, verse 2, until the day that Jesus was taken up into heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Wouldn't that have been fun to watch and be around? He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and he spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, let me just pause here for a second. I grew up in church. I probably had little cross logos on my diapers. Uh, I was in church for Sunday school, Sunday morning, and then the worship service, and Sunday evening service, prayer meeting on Wednesday night. You know, there's vacation Bible school, kids clubs, you name it. I did it all, junior church. I have heard many, many, many messages over my lifetime on the church, like you're getting today. I'm actually part of this, this whole thing, telling you a message on the church. I have heard very few messages on kingdom. But it's interesting in the Bible, kingdom's a big deal. As a matter of fact, if you were to read the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you only find church mentioned twice. But you find kingdom everywhere. It says that Jesus went walking from town to town, proclaiming the kingdom of God. Jesus would have his followers with him. And they get to a certain place, and Jesus would see something. He's like, hey, let me give you a little object lesson, a little story here. You see that over there? The kingdom of God is like, and he would tell them a story, a parable. Eventually, they looked at him one day, and they said, Jesus, you pray a lot. Could you teach us to pray? And so Jesus says, all right, sure. Here's, here's a good way to pray. How about this? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy church come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is that what he says? He doesn't say thy church come. He says thy kingdom come, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. It's all about the kingdom. Here, they're about ready to start church. If I had 40 days and you were the group I was going to start church with, we would do all kinds of things about how to do a good music set, how to make sure we have the sound figured out, what we should do for facilities, who's going to mow the grass, how are we going to handle parking, who's going to handle the finances, uh, what are we going to do for the children out there and the nursery stuff and the youth and singles, and we should probably think about this and that. I would do all the training of that. It doesn't appear that Jesus did any of that. He's going to start the church in 40 days. He spends 40 days talking to them about the kingdom of God. It actually reminds us that the church does not exist as an end in itself. We, the church, exist for the glory of the king and the advancement of his kingdom. And if we're not bringing glory to the king and the advancement of his kingdom, then we really don't deserve to exist as the church. Jesus spends time on the kingdom. Now let's pick it up from there. Oops. We're to verse 4, I believe, on one occasion... While he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift that my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized you with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
And then they gathered around him and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking up into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. And then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives. It was a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to a room where they were staying. And it lists a whole bunch of those who were present. In verse 14, it says, They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. We actually know a little bit later there's about 120 of them all together that are gathered there. So, out of this, I'd like to give you five ruts that I would love to see every church. I believe they're biblical ruts for churches to get stuck in. And in an appropriate pastoral style, I'm going to alliterate. It's actually ministerial malpractice to not alliterate a message. So, I'm going to give you five Ds so you can remember this as we walk through this. The first is the word depend. The word depend, it relates to the first command that we find here in this chapter. When I grew up in church, I thought the first command was found in verse 8. It says, but you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in your own Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, like in your own Lexington, and in the county, and in the country, and into the rest of the world. I thought that was the first command, to go be witnesses. But it's not, for two reasons. One is, it's not a command. It's a consequence. It's a result. Jesus didn't command us to be witnesses. He says, when the Holy Spirit is in your life, you will be a witness of the glory of Jesus. You actually won't be able to help yourself. So by the way, if I'm around churches that never see people come to know Jesus, that never are making a difference in their community, that are never carrying Jesus to a lost world, I actually have to wonder whether they're a church of the Holy Spirit. Because it says right here, when the Holy Spirit's a part of your life, this is what will happen. So it's not a command, it's a consequence. The command is actually found four verses earlier in verse four. Jesus said, wait. They had just spent three years walking the world with Jesus. They had watched him do miracles. They had heard his teachings. It was like the best apprenticeship anybody could ever have. They had just spent 40 days with him teaching them. It was like the best seminary class ever in the planet. They had watched Jesus die on the cross and now resurrected. He is there right in front of them. They're excited. They now believe fully. They get it. They're ready to go. Jesus has prepared them, taught them, trained them. And Jesus says, uh-uh, don't go do this yet. Don't do ministry until you have the presence of the Holy Spirit. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not trained well enough. None of it is good until you have the Holy Spirit. Unless the Holy Spirit is involved, we're just a Christian club. 
we only see things of eternal significance if the Holy Spirit is doing the work in and through us. Jesus says, have the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Depend upon the Holy Spirit. I would make it a double D. Desperately depend upon the Holy Spirit. Be a little bit like Moses was way back in the Old Testament where he said, God, if you don't go with us, we're not going. We're not just going to try to pretend to be your people without your presence. Could we actually be people of prayer? Did you notice that what they did, Jesus said, wait. They didn't just wait and do nothing. They went to pray. As a matter of fact, if there's not prayer, I'm pretty well convinced there's not the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. So we need to be people who will pray. And could we pray? Whether it's three widow ladies in a living room, a life group on Wednesday nights, here in this sanctuary, or wherever we're at, whatever we're doing, could we pray, God, don't let us just do church. Don't let us just play the game. God, we're not doing Lex City Church unless you're with us, unless you lead the way. We depend upon the Holy Spirit. It's the first one of the five Ds on purpose because the other four we'll try to do in our own strength and we will fall on our face. So the first D, desperately depend upon the Holy Spirit. The second D is disciple. It's actually what had been happening. They have been discipled by Jesus for three plus years. They're supposed to become more like Jesus. That's what a disciple is. Discipleship is not that you took a course and got a certificate suitable for framing. Discipleship is that I become more like the discipler, in this case, more like Jesus. People will say to me, I don't know how to disciple someone, but I'm just here to tell you, disciple making is not simply for the professionals. This isn't Pastor Brian's job. He is to be a disciple maker, but we're all to go and make disciples. Matthew chapter 28, Jesus after his resurrection said, all y'all, good Kentucky draw, all y'all go make disciples. This is what we're supposed to do. People say, I don't know how I would do that. Well, you can get a workbook or a handbook or something. That's fine. There's nothing against that. But really what you need to do is just buy somebody coffee or pizza and spend time with them. Ask them questions about what Jesus is saying in their life. Share with them what you're learning on your own journey, what you've been reading recently, the questions you have, the things you're trying to figure out, the fingerprints of God that you've seen as you've walked this week. And as they're catching up with you, you keep learning because you know we are none of us arrived yet, right? We all have to keep learning and growing. And as they catch up with you, you're still moving ahead, and you just invest in them what Jesus has invested in you. That's disciple-making. Every single one of us has been given that challenge to depend, to disciple. The third D is to develop. To develop godly leaders. We find out here at Acts chapter 1 something intriguing has happened that I didn't understand until just a few years ago. I always thought in the four Gospels, there was Jesus and the 12, the 12 disciples, or later called the 12 apostles. When I grew up, our PowerPoint was called flannel graph, okay? Flannel graph was a felt board in the Sunday school class. The teacher had these little things just stick up, these characters, you put them on there. So there was a flannel graph of the character of Jesus. He always had his finger pointing for some reason. And, he was, and you just, there's Jesus on the flannel graph. And then there was a flannel graph piece that was the 12, the 12 disciples. They're all in one thing, one big flannel graph piece. So you could move them all together, things like that. So there's Jesus and the 12. There's the 12 and Jesus. It's always Jesus and the 12. And I think that's all there is. 
But if I didn't read the end of Acts chapter 1, you can read this on your own later, but simply put, Peter stands up while the 120 of them are gathered in that room waiting for the Holy Spirit and praying. And Peter says, you know, there's something we ought to think about. We've lost key people on our team. I don't know if you've noticed, every church loses people sometimes. Every church. People will move on. People get job transfers. People move to another state. People go for whatever reasons. People sometimes leave for reasons that make perfect sense to us. Sometimes they leave for reasons that don't. They didn't like that song. They don't like this shirt the pastor wore on Sunday. They didn't like this or that or the other thing, and people will go. Sometimes it makes sense, sometimes not. It happens everywhere. Many of you that are here left somewhere else to come here. It's okay. Some people will leave here and go somewhere else. It's okay. It happens. It actually happened to Jesus, right? As a matter of fact, Jesus' whole leadership team bailed on him at his most important moments. And even when they hung around, sometimes you're like, really? Is that the best help you could find? And then one of them actually caused great harm when he left. His name was Judas, and he left for good. He didn't come back at all. Lost his life. And Peter stands up and says, you know, we need somebody else to stand in the gap, to step up. And we need to pray and choose from among those who've been with us from the very beginning. And I go, what? I thought it was just Jesus and the 12, the 12 and Jesus. No, there's a whole crowd of people. Yes, the 12 had a special role, special place of service, but they're not the only ones. There's this whole group to where out of that group there was a couple that had risen to the surface and were ready for the next step. And they prayed and they chose one of them to step into the gap. They had been doing ongoing development of future leaders all the way through. Can I just say that even in a church like Lex City, some of us will continue to lose hair or turn gray. Someday we won't be here. And what will we have done to set the table for the next generation of godly leaders in this church, men and women who will step up? What have we done to not simply provide space for them when we leave, but to have apprenticed them with us while we're here? I find that in most churches, there is no strategy to develop leadership and servanthood. We just hope upon hope that the next visitors to walk through the door on a Sunday morning is a really mature, wonderful Christian couple. We'll give them about three weeks. And then we'll say to them, we just want you to know we think you're an answer to prayer. And we wonder if you could like coordinate the nursery or teach junior high boys or maybe be an elder. And can I just say, Jesus is just gracious enough that he gives us people like that. But that doesn't mean it's the right strategy. We're to be training up others, developing them. So, Churches need to get stuck in a rut of depending upon the Holy Spirit, of making disciples who will make other disciples, of developing the next generations of godly leaders. Fourth, is the word deploy. I just need to point out that we tend to work off of an Old Testament idea of church here in America today. The Old Testament idea is that 
everything circles around the Sunday morning service and everything circles around this place of God called the sanctuary. Right? So, if in the Old Testament days, if, if Rob and Shelley are my next door neighbors and Rob looks over the fence someday and says, hey, you and Pam seem different to us. I want to know what it is in your life. I go, well, it's God that's in our life. He's like, well, can I learn more about God? Can I be your God? I'm like, sure. You and Shelly come with me, and I take them with me to the temple or the tabernacle in the Old Testament days, essentially church building in the Old Testament days. Why? Because there is a place there called the Holy of Holies, which is the place of the manifest presence of God. Come with me to meet God at the facility. But it all changed in one instant when Jesus died on the cross. At the moment Jesus died, it tells us in Scripture that in the temple at that time, the big doorway, this huge curtain, some 30 feet high, is torn by the hand of God from the top down to the bottom, and the Holy of Holies is ripped open. And no longer is the place of God's presence in a facility. Now the place of God's presence is in people. Now, I spent most of my childhood years being mortified that if I went running in the church sanctuary, lightning would strike me, or at least Mrs. McGillicuddy would grab my ear and drag me to my parents. Because how could I disrespect? Now, I'm, we should respect the building. I'm not saying you can have a stampede in the sanctuary. But I just need to say this. The place of the presence of God is not this building. The place of the presence of God is your lives. The Apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians. He says, don't you know? And he, the word you is individual. So basically he's saying, Cody, don't you know? that your life, your body, is the place of the presence of God? Courtney, don't you know that your life is the place of the divine presence of God? In the second place that Paul talks about it, it's that y'all, don't y'all know that here as the collective group of God, you are the divine presence of God? So I go to a lot of churches, and at the end of the service, they'll say, Hey, God bless you. Have a great week. We'll see you back at church next week. Well, actually, that's Old Testament. Because actually, we are the church heading out the doors. Now, there is a valuable place for us coming together each week. I was just in a parking garage yesterday. And in the parking garage, I came across the whole area where there's the, the jacks where if you've got an electric car, you plug it in, recharging stations. So I asked myself the question, because I'm a pastor, right? We have to ask, I wonder if this will preach. So, is there something there? When is the electric car most car-like? When is it most performing as a car should be? Is it while it's at the recharging station? The answer is no. It's most performing its business when it's out navigating the world, taking its people wherever it needs to go. But now that car needs to recharge sometimes. So we need a life group at Lex City. You need to come here on Sunday and have the whole gang, Devin, Dayton, LJ, James, Nick and Kelsey, Josh, and all the others who help make this possible. They're not performing for us. They're helping us to recharge with a heart of worship before our God and King so that Jesus can continue to overflow our lives as we head out. 
Pastor Brian and others, take us through the word so that we can navigate better as the church out in the world with our coworkers, our classmates, our neighbors, our friends and family members. This is what we do. So we need to deploy. I'm grateful when cool things happen at church. I hope it never stops. But I'm most delighted when the church goes to the world and makes a difference. We are the church. Leads us to our last D. It actually should have been the word collaborate, but that was not possible or acceptable because it doesn't start with a D. So we had to come up with a phrase. We call it do it together. I know it's cheating. But it's the idea that we can never do it ourselves. You can't reach your whole neighborhood by yourself. But in the power of Jesus with some other Christian people, you can make a huge difference. Lex City Church can't even reach all of Lexington by itself. There's tens upon tens of thousands of people here. Less than 20% of them are followers of Jesus Christ. So we have so much work to do, and we need to lean in shoulder to shoulder with others who call on the name of Jesus and do it together. I long for churches that will depend upon the Holy Spirit, that will make disciples who make other disciples, who will develop the next generations of godly leaders, who will deploy each week into their world, and who will do it together with others who call on the name of Jesus. When they did that in the book of Acts, it changed the whole world. And that can happen today as well. Let me take a minute and pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this church. I love being a part of this place. I love that already this church embraces the values that we've been talking about. And I pray that you'll, you'll springboard them to an even higher level of it. May there be wonderful things that take place. May the very best days of Lex City Church be the days still in front of it as you do the kind of things that only you can do. May we join with the Apostle Paul in both praying and experiencing that, God, you will do exceeding abundantly beyond all we could ask or think to your glory and through the church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Lex City Church podcast. If you would like to support ministries of Lex City, visit lexcity.church/give. Please subscribe and follow us on social media at Lex City Church for more encouraging teachings and content.